Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep on top of all the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day through our excellent newsletter, Handcrafted with Love, by Jeremy Goldcorn and his crack team, through our smartphone app or at our website at SupChina.com. We feature uncensored original reporting and commentary from and about China, covering topics from the Belt and Road Initiative to the South China Sea, from U.S.-China competition in technology to the plight of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, and much, much more. We're sure you'll agree it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from the Seneca South Studio in Durham, North Carolina. This week, we are featuring the second part of a two-part interview with Shelley Rigger, probably the best-known scholar in the U.S. focusing on the history and politics of modern Taiwan. To remind you, Shelley Rigger is Brown Professor of Political Science and Assistant Dean for Educational Policy at Davidson College here in North Carolina. The last section took you up through Taiwan's successful transformation into a democratic polity in the 1990s, and this time we're going to take you all the way up to the present, to how Taiwan has figured into the Trump administration's policies in the region and other relevant topics. So let me repeat that this interview originally ran on one of my absolute favorite China podcasts, the UPenn Center for the Study of Contemporary China podcast with Nason Mahbubi. Nason, who will also be on next week's show, but as a guest, is a fellow in Chinese law at the center and teaches law at UPenn's law school. I really admire his skill as an interviewer, and I'm sure that you'll come away very suitably impressed. Check out the show that he did with dissident lawyer Tung Biao, uh, which I helped edit, which should be out shortly. With Nason's blessing and with Shelley's, we are running this interview. Make sure to subscribe to the UPenn Center's podcast, and please enjoy the second half of this two-part interview. Well, let's focus now. I mean, you brought up this question of independence. Let's focus now on the question of the relationship between Taiwan and China. As you've been leading us uh, so nicely through this history, it's hard for me not to think of parallel developments in China around the same time. And the thought that came to mind was that once you get to about the mid-90s, both Taiwan and China have sort of in the preceding 10, 15, 20 years recalibrated and reconstituted themselves. They they had a particular kind of dynamic between the two in the 70s. Uh, and now a lot happens in China from the 70s to the 90s. You have the reform and opening period. You have the openness of the 80s. You have the Tiananmen crackdown. Then you have the opening up again, the economy to foreign investment in the early 90s. So that when I first go to China in the mid-1990s, there was this feeling that China is now kind of rising on the global stage in a way that we've seen the culmination now some 20 years later. But meanwhile, we have the story in Taiwan of the rupture of uh, recalibrating their identity now and then the democratization. So now we get to the 90s, these two countries that look a lot different than they did 20 years earlier. How would you characterize at that initial point of the early 90s, mid 90s, the relationship between the two countries and then lead us through how that develops over the the subsequent uh, 20 years? Sure. Prior to about 1995, I think, um, and this is a point on which there's a lot of argument. So, you know, this is just my sort of interpretation of the history. But prior to about 1995, people in Taiwan who did not really appreciate the necessity for continuing down a path that 
in some future moment was going to supposedly lead to unification under one Chinese flag. The people who are not down with that program, they saw the obstacle that they needed to overcome in order to achieve their goal of just saying, let's just not, you know, let's just let Taiwan be Taiwan, which is what we mean by, you know, formal Taiwan independence. Until about 1995, those folks believed that the obstacle they needed to overcome was the KMT. It was inside Taiwan. It was the ideology of unificationism that was embodied in the KMT party leaders and in that two million people and their descendants, you know, who had come from the mainland and were still in some way thinking they could go back. That made it very surprisingly easy for people in Taiwan, first of all, once the lid was off on free speech and so on, to to have a very lively conversation about Taiwan independence. I mean, if you look back in 92 through 96, people are actively advocating Taiwan independence all over the place in a way that very few people actually do anymore. Um, You know, making new flags and writing new national anthems and all of it. It also made it easy for people from Taiwan to go to the mainland and start their businesses. So there's this parallel thing that's happening. So, you know, China's on its political trajectory, or the PRC is on its political trajectory. Taiwan's on its political trajectory, and they are colliding on the economic front. Because in 1987, another beautiful thing that Zhang Jingguo did was to say, I look around me and I see thousands and thousands of elderly men who were wrenched away from their homes in the 1940s, Hmm. thrown into the army, pulled over here to Taiwan, promised that they would be returned, and it's not going to happen. And they will die without seeing their parents' graves. They will die without seeing their children that they left in the village when they went off with the army. We have to give them another chance. So he said, I will allow humanitarian visits to the mainland by these elderly soldiers. Almost all of them were were former soldiers. So those guys, they get on the plane to go. They they can't go directly. They got to go to Hong Kong first and then go in from Hong Kong. They get on the plane. Well, who's going to carry their luggage, right? Their sons and sons-in-laws. Taiwanese guys in their sort of early to mid-middle age. They get off the plane, and what dad sees is you know, I don't recognize my hometown. What the son or the son-in-law sees is this is perfect for my business. Hmm. The land is cheap. The buildings are crappy. The people are underemployed and will do anything for money. This is exactly what we need. Because again, in one of these incredible sort of accidents of history, I guess, It's just at that moment that Taiwan's export-oriented manufacturing is topping out in a whole bunch of industries. So wages in Taiwan had gone up to where they were not competitive, and also they were facing environmental problems that were causing regulation that was also driving up costs. So shoes, toys, apparel, all this stuff, you know, the old made in Taiwan can't be made in Taiwan anymore by 1987. And just at that moment, you know, like the the clouds part, the rainbow appears, the ta-da sings out. 
there's where you can set up your factory. So there's this ginormous flood of Taiwanese businesses from Taiwan to the mainland. Very welcome. You know, these local governments are ecstatic to get this investment. Then Tiananmen happens and all the other potential investors bug out for a couple of years because they're doing sanctions. The Taiwanese, it's all sub rosa, you know, nobody's in charge. So mm. they just flood in and fill that space and save China from sanctions for better or for worse. So, you know, at the same time, you have people back in Taiwan and many of them are the same people, right? They're investing in the mainland, but they're doing politics back in Taiwan. They're saying, you know, we don't want to be part of China or we definitely don't want to be part of the PRC, you have this very mutually advantageous economic cooperation going on. So that's sort of the early 90s. And so back in Taiwan, everybody's thinking the issue, the relationship with the mainland is fine. Like Li Donghui is setting up these talks in Singapore. We're, we got people talking back and forth so we can send the mail. And, you know, if you die, so there'd be somebody to box you up and send your body back. So it's all, all seems fine. Meanwhile, you know, we can talk about Taiwan independence. We can make a new flag. Then comes 1994, 95, 96, when the PRC sees these trends and says, wait a minute, you know, we've got to knock this back or we're going to be facing a crisis that we cannot manage. So Because it's still important in the ideology or the the logic of the Communist Party rule that it's one China and someday there will be reunification. I want you to say something about that. But meanwhile, on the Taiwanese side, has the KMT by this period, have they let go entirely of that? Or is there still some remnant of being interested in reunification on KMT terms? Maybe not quite the same way that they thought about it under you know, Jiang Kai-shek or even his son, Jiang Jingguo, but still some element of that. Yes, definitely. So in 1996, when they had that first uh, direct presidential election, the KMT actually nominates kind of three people. Actually, the KMT only nominated one person, Li Donghui. Mm -hmm. But there were two other candidates who were from the KMT. And their mark of distinction was that they were more pro-unification than Li Donghui. And Li Donghui did a lot of things. He put in place a number of institutions that had as their goal unification, but it was a, to be a kind of uh, negotiated unification that would be possible only when the mainland political system had democratized the way Taiwan's had, you know, so I don't think it's fair to say that at that stage, Li Donghui was, you know, already pushing for Taiwan independence, but which he is doing now, which he is very doing much. now. <laughs> yeah. But I think he, he, the, the concept of, of unification that he had was, was one that it was hard to imagine how that could actually be achieved given the nature of the PRC then and even more so given the nature of the PRC now. So, so that to me sounds like a concept of reunification that would be something along the lines of we are two equal type powers. We share this Chinese heritage. We have these ties. It makes sense for us to combine. But I respect you. You respect me. I respect your system. You respect my system. We kind of meld our systems. Is there still some at that time and even today some 
sentiment with the KMT, which is we're going to take control again. That's our. That's still our place. And I mean, is that still a viable? Was that in the '90s and leading up today still a viable? perspective? I don't think even in the mid-90s, there were really very many people who imagined that that could happen. Uh, What they may have thought was that a democratic China would be an opportunity for the KMT to return to power. And I don't know whether you hear people talking about this in in the mainland, but every once in a while, somebody in the mainland will say to me, because they know I'm a Taiwan specialist and that I go to Taiwan a lot, we'd rather have the KMT than the CCP right now. Right. You know, so I think for some people in the KMT, it wasn't so much that the ROC would would replace the PRC as that somehow the KMT would be a, a viable alternative to the Chinese Communist Party as the ruling party of all of China. Well, certainly, I mean, speaking on the Chinese side, I found that many Chinese reformers have been inspired by the example of Taiwan, of the democratization in Taiwan. Uh, They like the preserved and ember ROC constitution. And some of the political developments most recently in Taiwan have been, uh, you know, maybe I get too much in the weeds of uh, administrative law and courts and things like that. But a lot of the things that are in that sphere, certainly that I that I look at are of uh, inspiration to Chinese reformers, whether or not Taiwanese are so interested in having their country be viewed as a model for development by China is, is maybe a separate question. But I do want to get back to that question of when you said in the, in the mid-90s, the Chinese government starts to think, oh, wait, this is kind of going off the rails. What does that start triggering in terms of the Chinese government, the PRC government's approach to the question of Taiwan becoming more independent? Before I go to that point, I just want to say something about administrative law because you're not wrong, right? Mm, um, that's good to hear. <laughs> there are, yeah, there are a lot of Taiwanese lawyers and law professors who consult with the PRC government to sure. help them write their law codes because they didn't have law codes for the longest time. And when, and all of a sudden, you know, they have to generate law to cover this entire modern economy. And so they've borrowed a lot of Taiwanese law, which has been very beneficial for Taiwanese businessmen because they already know it. (laughs) It's like they get to Taiwan or they get to the mainland and the rules are the same as they were back home, mostly. Um, So it is definitely uh, for real that this kind of uh, cross-fertilization has happened in, in many different realms. But One area where the PRC government was not interested in cross-fertilizing with Taiwan was on the question of national identity and Mm. kind of national sovereignty. So as the voice of Taiwan independence seemed to be more and more audible, and the ability of the KMT to kind of guarantee that the unificationist position would remain ascendant in Taiwan politics became less and less reliable, the PRC sort of realized we got to, we got to, we've got to show our hand here. So in the mid 1990s, there were a series of military exercises that were aimed at showing Taiwan what would happen, showing the resolve that, that the, that the PRC and the People's Liberation Army had to prevent Taiwan independence. And I think that message actually was received 
And if you look at the 1996 presidential election, the DPP candidate ran on this very strong independence, pro-independence platform. And he did worse in terms of votes than other DPP candidates had done in previous elections. So, you know, he's, he was not rewarded for his strong pro-independence stance. And I think that was because people began to realize, you know, here they were, they were prisoners in this KMT prison, and they tunneled out through the ground and they tunneled up and they broke the surface and they said, we're out. And then they turned around and there's another fence encircling and that's the PRC. Hmm. And that's where the gun towers are and the razor wire and the Klieg lights. You're not getting out of that. So I think what we see in the late 1990s and and into the 2000s is uh, Taiwanese people reckoning with the deep difficulty of actually doing independence, that it had seemed like something that was in reach if they could just persuade the KMT that they could do it. And ever since the mid-90s, it's been the the challenge is persuading Beijing. And that's a lot harder. And why is that? I mean, we're, we're recording this uh, here in my office at the center. I have a map of the People's Republic of China up on the wall, which I bought in China. And you can see that the international boundary line uh, very clearly is on the other side of Taiwan. So it's clearly indicating the view that Taiwan is a province of, of China. Why is such a... I mean, you know, you look at the map and you see, you know, China is this enormous country. And Taiwan is, if you thought of it as a Chinese province, it would be one of the smallest provinces. Why is this so important to them? Why why is this of such a depth that they can't, in a sense, let it go? Well, of course, I'm going to turn that question back on you because you're the China guy. So, um, you know, I'm going to ask you what what you think. The big debate among uh, Taiwan specialists on that question is, between those who believe that it's mainly about, well, it's probably three sides to this debate, um, mainly about domestic politics, those who say it is a kind of essential for the legitimacy of the Chinese government, so whatever Communist Party or a Nationalist Party, but that, you know, the the integrity of some kind of territory that they've decided to define like this map on your wall is essential for the legitimacy of those who claim to represent the Chinese people in the international community. And then yet another um, point of view that is often expressed is that it's strategic, you know, Mm. that, that Taiwan sits in a very strategic location and that as long as it is not under the control of the mainland government, it's a risk. It's a security threat. But I I would love to know what you think is the reason. And I I wish I had a better answer than I do. It it has been a puzzle for me. It's not something that that I study particularly, but I, I do find that over the years, it has become something that in China, I feel like there's less sensitivity about. I think when I first started going to China in the mid 90s, I would encounter more strong views among just interlocutors in China about Taiwan. And I I feel like at least within the group of people that I interact with, that's lessened over time. I do take your strategic point uh, that, you know, you look at Taiwan as a 
potential uh, launching pad for, which, I mean, that's the way that KMT viewed it for a long time. It's not an irrational point of view uh, for some kind of attack on China. I could, that in some sense, I think just, I don't know, I think the the ideology part of it, the notion of the one Chinese nation, I, I don't know how, how much that really is the driver or, or other things. But in any case, uh, I want to jump ahead and to connect to the current uh, developments and President Xi Jinping, who clearly is uh, expressing a very robust uh, view of the necessity of reunification. In jumping, I'm jumping over ever greater ties between Taiwan and China through the 90s, through the 2000s, through the beginnings of the of, of this decade. Uh, and we don't really need to get into it. The, the bottom line is just that there's more, not just the Taiwanese investment in China, but a greater Chinese investment in Taiwan over time, student exchanges, uh, flights, uh, the, the full gamut. So even as the relationship gets more complicated politically at some level, it's also become a much, much deeper relationship. Uh, maybe do you want to say anything about that before we, we jump into uh, President Xi and his attitude? Yeah, I, you know, I think that you're exactly right that the the relationship between the sort of everyday practical interactions between people in Taiwan and institutions, organizations that are headquartered in Taiwan and people, institutions and organizations on the mainland, those interactions have become just absolutely indispensable I would argue for both sides. Uh, you know, I'm currently working on a project on Taiwan's contributions to the PRC's economic takeoff. And they, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that we would see China as we do had those Taiwanese sons and sons-in-law not taken their uh, Barbie factories over to mainland China. Maybe not Barbies, but you know what I mean. They're injection molded plastics. Well, they're over. Apple. They're Apple factory. And and that's a whole other wave in the '90s when Taiwan, you know, so they clear out all the um, basic manufacturing and repopulate their economy with high tech, and then they sweep the the low end of the high tech off to the PRC, where now you know our iPhones are made. So I don't think China would be where it is today without. Uh, having had Taiwanese investment in the particular form that it took. But those economic relationships not only do not sweep away the political tensions, they actually, in some ways, I think, can exacerbate political tensions. Mm. You know, there's resentment in mainland China. Why do these Taiwanese think that they can, you know, pay our workers so little or... Uh, are they exploiting the opportunities that we have here? And the Taiwanese say, you know, why do you always, you know, every time I hire a good factory manager, after two years, he's off opening his own factory, making my product for cheaper under the protection of the local party secretary. Hmm. You know, so there's there's ways that these interactions actually make the relationship more difficult rather than less difficult. But what, I think what about Chinese investment in Taiwan? Has that become something that creates tensions as well? The, it's much more limited hmm. uh, because it's much more tightly regulated. But yes, it does create tensions. And how I would sort of explain the last maybe ten years of cross-strait relations is really the uh, you know in two thousand eight. 
Maying Joe was elected president. And Maying Joe is KMT guy and very much convinced that the way forward for Taiwan was through integration and, and positive interactions with the PRC. He was not trying to accomplish unification in his lifetime, but he was willing to keep that possibility among the topics of conversation in order to enable better political inter or better economic interactions and to, and to some extent better political interactions as well. And that I think was welcome by the electorate for the first four years or so of his presidency. And he was reelected in 2012 for a second term, but already in 2012, people were beginning to be nervous that the relationship had gotten too close and that, that things had gone too far. And what you see from 2012 to 2016 is just a series of upheavals in Taiwan where people are fundamentally saying, we're afraid that we have gotten too deeply intertwined and that the the Chinese are going to gain leverage over us and we're not we're going to lose control over our own fate. And so the then 2012 there was a big movement to prevent a Taiwanese businessman who had a lot of business in the mainland from buying a media group. He already owned a lot of Taiwanese media and he wanted to own some more and people really reacted very strongly to the thought that this guy who was who had made pro unification statements was going to own like a substantial fraction of Taiwan's media and in the end he didn't do it as similarly in 2014 the sunflower movement sure, that people may have heard about yeah. was about um young people raising the question who's making these decisions for us you know it wasn't strictly an anti-China thing or, you know, too much integration, but it was really more fundamental than that. They were asking, is our political system working? Is our voice audible? Is anybody paying attention to the potential hazard of just forging ahead with this strategy that says the more interaction we have, the better? And I think that's really what was driving the Sunflower movement. And, and just to specify, so this is in March, April of 2013, 2014, 2014 yeah. where uh, the students occupy the Taiwanese legislature uh, for, you know, a significant about a about a month and yeah. uh, it gained a lot of international attention and probably also some Chinese attention of thinking, oh, look, this is this is what we're going to have to deal with if this kind of keeps going off the off the track as it has for the for the past 20 years. And I think that is an a fantastic point. Mm. There are lots of people who say to me, you know, I think China is just so powerful and Taiwan is so small. And, you know, the PRC government is so highly motivated to solve this problem. And, you know, you talk to, if you ask Chinese people, they're really, really, really determined that they got to get Taiwan back. And how can Taiwan possibly be sustained in the 21st century. This is my task for tomorrow to talk about that. And I think the PRC government looks at Taiwan and thinks this is a very, very spiky object and grasping it will be difficult. And we don't have any urgency 
because we have them where we want them. You know, they're right. n- they're not going to lunge for independence. The, the current president, Tsai Ing-wen, elected in 2016, is a very cautious, very prudent person. She is not interested in unification, but she's also not going to give the PRC a pretext to you know, use some kind of coercive measure against Taiwan. So the the there's no urgency. I think it's hard to make the case that there's urgency to to put an end to this kind of unsettled. On the Taiwanese side, there's right. no urgency. And on on the Chinese side, on the PRC side, either. But, but I, the actions of groups and individuals like the Sunflowers, I think that those are a reminder to Beijing, you know, if you, this is really genuinely spiky and it's not going to be easy and you, it will take time. So I think it does affect their calculus when it seems that people and the voters in Taiwan, the activists in Taiwan are in a strongly sort of anti-China mode. Well, so let's talk about Xi Jinping now. We we sort of anticipated it and we sort of laid out a little bit more groundwork before we got to it. But now that we're here, uh, Xi Jinping, as any listener of this podcast would know, but as any observers of China, uh, even casual observers would know, has become very powerful within China, has consolidated power on a number of different dimensions, And one of his themes has been the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, which has an outward-looking component, trying to reestablish China as a major force on the global stage. There's many different things that are embedded with that. Uh, The One Belt, One Road project, greater activity in international institutions, but also, at least in terms of rhetoric, a much greater statements about uh, the possibility of reunification, the mechanisms for unification than I think we had seen in the years prior to that. And this was something that you were referencing a bit in your lunchtime talk here. Uh, so let's let's get into that now. What What is in this post-Cold War period under uh, these new sets of dynamics set in motion in lots of different ways that are expressed and also shaped by leaders like Donald Trump? What's going on with Xi Jinping and what's going on with his uh, approach to Taiwan? I really think that Xi Jinping is in a very dangerous position. There is moral hazard embedded in the international system at the moment. And it is our good fortune as a planet that Xi Jinping is a smart and sensible guy and is I think pretty unlikely to fall into the the sort of moral hazard trap that is threatening to ensnare him. And what I have in mind there is just if the US as our current leadership seems to suggest we are planning to do or or we might, you know, our government might do, if the US withdraws from international leadership, then there is a we vacuum. We haven't done that yet? Well, yeah, we kind of have done that. But, you know, were, were we to sort of instrumentalize that or operationalize that in military terms? Because yeah. right now what we have is we have this completely nonsensical policy, which is simultaneously isolationist and hawkish, which I don't even understand how you can be both isolationist and hawkish. Yet I feel that this is what our government, you know, the U.S. government is doing. Um, but it, were we to become 
isolationist mostly and drop the hawkishness part, then there's a vacuum. And uh, nature and global politics both abhor a vacuum, right? Mm. And you could see that being very tempting for Xi Jinping. And I think to some extent, uh, the PRC is looking at global opportunities, but I think they are looking at them very cautiously. You know, we, we talk about the Belt and Road Initiative, and certainly the Belt and Road Initiative is about expanding Chinese power outward and linking up different countries. But it's it's a relatively modest and kind of, it's not a very violent way to do it. You know, the U.S. has a, a recent history of projecting its power much uglier than building railroads and investing in port infrastructure and stuff like that. So in a way, I think, you know, China's choosing to to extend its power outward in the least threatening way a, a nation could do. So the concern that I have is that the U.S., the vacuum that the U.S. creates will kind of uh, necessitate a more power-oriented as opposed to a sort of economic-oriented mm-hmm. response by China, by Russia, by Iran, by other countries, by Japan, you know, by lots of countries that, that see a space that, that if they don't fill it, it will be filled against them. So the takeaway I'm getting uh, as to Xi Jinping and Taiwan is you you seem to think that despite the rhetoric, he is inclined or at least at the moment is positioned to be more cautious in approaching Taiwan. But that's assuming a somewhat static situation vis-a-vis U.S. power on the global stage. And if that were to change in a greater degree, then maybe his calculations will change. Yeah. And I do think that there are red lines for the PRC that, you know, they they can't ignore, like, you know, a declaration of independence, which I think is extremely unlikely, but I... Has been in the news lately, this... Uh, right. I don't know if you want to say anything about that. Well, so there was a, a flurry of attention to a meeting that some people had in Taiwan to where they said, you know, we should have a referendum on independence. And there were two ex-presidents at that meeting, but both of those ex-presidents are very ex. Li Donghui well, and Chen Shui-bian. Um, yeah, that's Li Donghui was, uh, let's just say Li Donghui apparently fought in World War II. So I don't know exactly what year he was born, but he's a very senior leader in Taiwan. And Chen Shui-bian is also uh, not someone who has a, a whole lot of political juice left. And the DPP was not part of this meeting. Tsai Ing-wen had nothing to do with it. So, but you know, we can we can decide, and the PRC could decide to overreact to something that Shelley Rigger might say it's no big deal, but they might say it's a big deal to us. So we never know like where where exactly that red line is and when that red line might have been or could be crossed. But I think and. Here, I guess I want to go back to our map of China. I think the the biggest risk is and has been for a long time the possibility of a misstep by the U.S. Hmm. Because at the end of the day, maybe the best explanation for why the PRC is so determined 
to bring Taiwan under the PRC flag is that, you know, it would be good to have it strategically. It sucks that the Civil War thing is still hanging on and the KMT has never been decisively defeated. And, you know, the Chinese nation would be really super rejuvenated. But what's really maybe at the heart of it is the fact that the United States of America has prevented the PRC from achieving this fundamental national goal now for like 70 years. And how can China be fully stood up as as a major nation for the 21st century as long as the United States of America is thwarting something that the PRC has defined as a a top priority. Hmm. So it's less about, you know, who cares what the people in Taiwan want? We can wait forever for them, maybe. But the U.S. needs to get out. And as long as they're in it, we will have to fight about it. So I think that's why things like this Taiwan Travel Act are a little scary because these are the sort of inflection points for the US where we make a decision. Are we going to remind Beijing that we are in it in that way and that that in some sense the inability to solve this problem that they have chosen for themselves is our fault? Are we going to put their? Are we going to put that right up in their faces, or are we going to say, you know what, Taiwan's okay, we're okay, we don't need to, we don't need to poke, as my dad says, we don't need to kick the skunk, right? Mm-hmm. And my concern with this administration is that they, there's nothing Donald Trump loves better than to kick a skunk. I'm not entirely sure what the image of Donald Trump kicking a skunk is. <laughs> bringing to mind here. But that does make me want to think about, uh, so, you know, we've talked about the U.S. as um, a factor in this story insofar as the U.S. may withdraw from global leadership and leave a vacuum. We've talked about the U.S. as a factor in the story insofar as the U.S. Congress is passing things like the Taiwan Relations Act, which, as you very nicely laid out, is consistent with how the U.S. Congress has approached Taiwan since the 1970s. But then the next variable is how President Trump will treat Taiwan in the context of his efforts to forge some kind of relationship with China, whether it's a more cooperative relationship or a more contentious relationship. Taiwan is going to be a chit in that story. And so what are your thoughts on the challenges or the rather I should say the risks or the potential rewards of President Trump's engagement with China for uh, Taiwan. So for that one, I think it's helpful to go back to December 2nd, uh, 2016, when uh, they had this phone call. So a lot of people, they heard that President-elect Trump had talked on the phone with the Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen, and they just freaked out. Out. But I thought, eh, first of all, I see the hand behind that. Like, I understand who set that up. I don't know exactly, like, the names, but I have a list, and I bet it's somebody on that list. And I don't think that's a terrible idea. Because what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, while Trump is still 
not in office, so he's just a president-elect, he's still a private citizen, let's allow him to have a little interaction with Tying one so that going forward, they have when they can no longer speak directly, they will have a little trust, a little knowledge of each other, and their intermediaries can move back and forth in that knowledge. So I thought I can see how somebody thought that was a good idea, but here's what wasn't a good idea letting the agent of this clever plan be someone with no self-control, right? Because what happened was when people began, when the media began to criticize the phone call, which was inevitable, you know, they're going to see it as, well, it never happened before, so is this allowed? Instead of saying nothing or saying very little, Trump got on Twitter. And the tweets that he sent out basically made, first of all, made... Taiwan responsible for the whole thing. He blamed, I mean, he thought he was giving Taiwan credit or he was showing how important he was that she would call him. But in fact, what he did was he, he gave the PRC the opportunity to make her the bad guy. And he also, uh, in this set of tweets, pulled Taiwan into a bunch of issues in U.S.-China relations, it actually had nothing to do with Taiwan. He mentioned trade issues, he mentioned currency manipulation, and he mentioned South China Sea. All of things where, all issues where the U.S. has a problem with with China and Taiwan is not in it. So now he's put Taiwan in it. And then he goes on with an interview to say, well, you know, I don't know why we should do this one China policy until I get something from the mainland. So at this point, I just imagine that the Taiwan is cowering under her desk. This phone call unleashed more than she was expecting. In fact, my understanding is that this phone call was supposed to be private. Hmm. So, yes, it it unleashed a lot more than she was expecting. And she is not in a position to rebuff the advances of Mr. Trump, as so many women have found themselves unable to rebuff his advances, nor is she able to, you know, she can't say, I don't want your help, but what she's getting is not necessarily helpful. Hmm. So Taiwan is in a very difficult position vis-a-vis this administration. And the other thing about this administration that's especially worrisome from the Taiwan perspective is that it's very unpredictable, as you said. And so the uh, possibility that Taiwan could be a bargaining chip and or, or could be introduced into some transaction is ever present. And it is impossible for me to say with any confidence whether Taiwan would be played out as a chip in the sense of uh, the U.S. government telling the PRC government, you know, we we can withdraw our support. We can stop selling weapons to Taiwan in exchange for this, whatever you give us. Mm. Or just as I, I think it's just as possible to imagine this administration saying, Taiwan, get out there and light up. Because we've got a beef with China and, you know, you're, you're the front line. So, you know, either, either way is not good for Taiwan. And either of those possibilities, because we have an, an administration that is simultaneously isolationist and hawkish, that has fired a series of relatively um, moderate 
foreign policy people and may replace them with people who are much less moderate, we could go either way. And neither of those outcomes is good for Taiwan. And I think there's a there's a way that policymakers in the U.S. sometimes tell themselves that they're helping Taiwan when they're really not. And at the same time, I would think that it could not have helped Taiwanese confidence in this situation that the Chinese played it with extraordinary sophistication. One could have imagined that the Chinese reacting much more, not just forcefully, but ineffectively in criticizing the U.S. government, criticizing President Trump for that phone call. But in my mind, at least, they were extraordinarily sophisticated in expressing their dissatisfaction, but focusing entirely on Tsai Ing-wen and meanwhile cultivating a stunningly positive relation, personal relationship with President Trump and his family that I don't think any of us were expecting mm-hmm. um, in that early period as the lead up to President Trump's inauguration. Of course, it's a complicated relationship, and there's lots of things that are going to be more contentious as we go forward. But still, that particular episode, I thought the Chinese handled diplomatically extremely well. And that would, if I was viewing this from the Taiwanese perspective, that would have probably made me nervous. And that is one of the ways that I can convince myself that the Beijing leadership believes, and I would argue rightly, that they have Taiwan pretty much where they need for Taiwan to be. Hmm. So we have this never-ending debate in my world. Has the PRC's Taiwan policy failed or not? And I would say that it definitely has not failed. You know, Taiwan is very much contained, very much isolated. The ways that the Obama administration was seeking to help Taiwan, which were quite substantive, starting with the TPP, swept off the table by Trump for reasons that had nothing to do with Asia policy or strategy, but were really dumb because now this major policy instrument that we had that actually did matter to Taiwan is is gone. Well, the the incoming uh, national economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, I think, Uh he was quoted the other day as saying, just the other day, as saying something along the lines of, really, it would be beneficial to contain China through some kind of regional trade agreement with Asian nations. Yeah. Seems like a good idea. Yeah. I, you could call it, I don't know, maybe the Trans-Pacific Partnership would be a nice. No, 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 no. You should call it the Trump-Pacific Partnership. You wouldn't have to change that the letterhead. Sound, that does sound better. But yeah. Yeah. So these reactions by the new administration and the way that the PRC has skillfully managed things and the degree to which Taiwanese leaders seem to be pretty prudent and cautious, say to me that the policy, the fundamental policy of foreclosing the possibility of a challenge to Chinese sovereignty in the Taiwan Strait Hmm. has been successful. And the question is, do you have to now turn your attention to unification? Or could you say, as the Chinese Communist Party has many times about many issues, This is something that will take a long time. One of my students just today said to me, you know, the preliminary stage of socialist development is intended to last for a very long time. (laughs) 
you know, and that's how they, that's, that's right. And so it's okay to have the preliminary stage of unification last for a long time too, because we don't know what the future will bring. And we don't know what kind of creative solution people in mainland China and Taiwan might come up with. So I think the PRC has been extremely successful in securing its fundamental interest with respect to this issue. It has sort of backed the U.S. off. It has backed the Taiwan Independence Forces off. And, you know, sort of resting on laurels and really trying to think about what's the next step to get closer to your preferred outcome would make sense to me and not rushing for something that could actually end up leaving you worse off. And I want to emphasize that part of your comment, because that is clearly coming across in your analysis, that notwithstanding the more belligerent rhetoric that's coming out of China these days vis-a-vis Taiwan, you seem to, and, and putting in all the contingencies of we live in this era that it seems there's a lot of stuff that's changing And I think you've very much sort of built into your analysis that there's things that could happen that could upend the status quo. But until those things happen, what you seem to be conveying is that there is not in your um, prognostication any imminent threat of military action by China to uh, reunify Taiwan, notwithstanding the rhetoric, notwithstanding the upcoming anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic or the founding of the Chinese Communist Party, which sometimes people say are going to be anniversary dates that the Chinese government would want to commemorate with a reunification. Notwithstanding all of that, if the picture stays more or less the way it is right now, the picture of the relationship between the U.S. and China, U.S. and Taiwan, uh, global order generally, this is the status quo. I guess I'll sign on to that. You're making me nervous. I'm just imagining you posting this podcast, you know, in four weeks from now and me sounding like the world's dumbest person, you know, the person who who was positive that the Soviet Union was 100 percent rock solid in 1991. Until the date wasn't. Yeah. Um, but yes, I mean, I think that's right. And that could partially be a little bit of wishful thinking on my part because I'm a big fan of peace and people not killing each other over dumb stuff, which is almost always what people kill each other over. Like there's almost always a better way out of the situation than killing each other. So uh, maybe it's wishful thinking on my part, but I also think that PRC government has so many other priorities and so many other challenges that they are facing and so much to be proud of and so much to point to as positive achievements that I just think they are able to recognize that continuing to amass a record of success, a record of promoting better life for people all over Eurasia, Africa, Latin America, that's your legacy right there, you know? Yeah. Do that one. Well, we'll see. Yep. <laughs> we'll certainly see. And uh, we won't hold any of the prognostication against you. Um, we can blame me if, uh, if because it's going to be some lag time before this is posted, if, if anything dramatic happens in the next few weeks. Um, but let's, let's conclude this really interesting and fun conversation by, by just putting the lens again just on Taiwan and ask you to say something about 
this moment for Taiwan, you, you've talked about Taiwan having to, in a sense, reinvent itself a number of times uh, over the course of its dramatic 20th and 21st century history. Is this another moment where Taiwan has to grapple with its identity? And can it successfully? I mean, assuming, again, a nothing too dramatic happening in the near future, can Taiwan uh, navigate this next period? And what will it look like? If you can speculate as to that, what will this Taiwanese identity look like going forward? One of the things that I think it's pretty safe to say is that the debate over identity that was raging in Taiwan in the 90s and the 2000s is pretty settled on the idea that, look, definitely, uh, with the exception of the uh, indigenous peoples and the ever-growing number of immigrants to Taiwan, and that's a whole other conversation, our roots are, are in China. You know, we have... A Chinese culture and and that is an important part of who we are, but that is not that does not need to define us politically and our community, the sort of uh, you know the community of shared fate or common destiny that we belong to as Taiwanese is specific to this island and you know the little scattering of islands around it. And the PRC should do the PRC, but, but we should do Taiwan. And we should not fight them for the privilege of representing those, that culture, that civilization. But we also don't need to purge that from who we are. But I also think increasingly in Taiwan, who we are means... We're the people of this particular, you know, heritage who practice democracy, who tolerate annoying people yelling on TV way too much, who work really, 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 really hard, like crazy hours all the time, because we believe that life can be okay and mm. and things can get a little better. Um, you know, there's a kind of modesty about Taiwan that I think serves that people really well. They're not asking anybody to follow their model or, you know, join their bandwagon, but they are making themselves a different kind of beacon, a beacon of kind of civil society and civic conduct and economic nimbleness that they are trying to share with other countries in the region. So they've got this new southbound policy where they're reaching out to Southeast Asia and South Asia for economic cooperation and educational exchanges. And they are also the headquarters of a program that's also supported by the U.S. government to use Taiwan and its particular expertise in things like um, disaster relief and like earthquake response to train people from all over the world in practical humanitarian skills 
that can make life better in other places. So, you know, instead of a Belt and Road Initiative where you're trying to throw railroads all over everybody, Taiwan is trying to train people how to find earthquake survivors, Mm. you know, with a sniffer dog. And that's a lot more modest, but it's enough for Taiwan. And I think that's probably the right way to go forward. Well, as you put it like that, it's hard not to root for (laughs) uh, that uh, small island, uh, but global powerhouse that you've described so aptly in in your book, uh, which I'll plug once again, because it is uh, such a great introduction, uh, Why Taiwan Matters. But as we continue to follow the story and uh, see how it develops, I'm sure we'll all be looking very carefully at your analysis uh, and how you see the picture changing. Uh, This has been such a great conversation. Thanks so much for taking the time to go through things so patiently and uh, describe them so well. Uh, we, We really, I think, gave the listeners as comprehensive, but I think also entertaining an introduction to these issues as they could hope for. Uh, And I hope they enjoyed it as much as I did. So thank you so much, Professor Rigger. You are very welcome. It's my pleasure, truly. And uh, otherwise, I hope our listeners uh, will stay tuned for the next episode of this podcast uh, next week for uh, yet more great discussion from the University of Pennsylvania Center for the Study of Contemporary China. In the meantime, please continue to subscribe to our feed on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Do take a moment to rate us and offer any reviews. Feel free to send me any feedback, and I hope that you'll spread the word about the podcast more generally. Thanks for listening. 